Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Slevin, sitting in for Simon Morris. This week on At The Movies, a marsh girl. In town, they tell the story of the marsh girl, the one who grew up alone in the wild. But they never really knew me. A grey man. You hurt? I mean, my ego's a little bruised. I would like the opportunity to save you at some point. Not that I want you to be in danger, just so I can save you. And a quiet girl. In town, they tell the story of the marsh girl, the one who grew up alone in the wild. But they never really knew me. Like most stories, the facts don't weigh into it. I didn't know how to do life. You didn't see me here. I was better off learning from the marsh. Hello, Miss Kyle. I hear y'all by muscles. No, they never did see me here. The marsh taught me how to survive, but it couldn't teach me everything. One of the things that people don't realise about this job is that the more extreme your response to a film, the easier it is to write about. If you love it, the words tend to flow. If you hate something, they gush. But if your response to a film is a shrug and a, yeah, it was all right, I suppose, then the process comes to a screaming halt and you need a tractor to tow you out of the bog. That's the problem with two of the three films we feature on today's show. They're perfectly acceptable, but also eminently forgettable. Both of them made with a certain amount of professionalism and craft, but not much in the way of heart or spark. Nothing to elevate them into a full-blooded recommendation, but also no reason why you wouldn't spend a wet afternoon or a sick day putting up with them. So, where to begin with Where the Crawdads Sing? It's an adaptation of a recent publishing sensation, a bestseller consistently since publication in 2018. Word of mouth has helped it to sales of over 12 million copies. Well, word of mouth and the support of Reese Witherspoon's book club. Did you know she had a book club? It rivals Oprah's for influence. And her support helped get this romantic thriller courtroom story in front of millions of readers. Witherspoon's support continues. She's an executive producer of the film. And you can see how the success of the film and the book are now intertwined because the publisher, Harper Collins gets an in-association with credit. In spite of everything, trying to stomp it out, life persists. Way out 
yonder, where the crawdads sing. The marsh knows one thing above all else. Every creature does what it must to survive. Daisy Edgar-Jones plays Kaya, a young woman forced to bring herself up in the North Carolina marsh. Don't you dare call it a swamp. After the rest of her family, one by one, escapes the brutal treatment of their drunken World War II traumatised father, played with a single sneer by Garrett Dillahunt. At the beginning of the film, she is arrested by the local sheriff on suspicion of the murder of rich boy and athletic hero Chase Andrews, who has been found face down in the marsh with a blow to the head. Because to the locals, she's obviously some kind of weirdo, and she was known to have hung out with the chap, she is now the prime suspect. Kindly retired lawyer Tom Milton, David Strathairn, offers to defend her, and it is he who teases out her sad but also uplifting story. When the father finally departs the scene, possibly drowned in the marsh, the young Kaya played in these early sequences by Jojo Regina, pretends to locals that she is not on her own and survives by harvesting mussels from the shallow bay nearby. What she doesn't do is learn to read and write. What she does do is learn about the natural world of the marshes, the birds, the insects, etc., and she becomes adept at drawing them in intricate detail. As she grows up, she attracts interest from a couple of handsome local boys, the aforementioned Chase and the rather more sensitive Tate, played by Taylor John Smith, and both of them find ways to let her down. <laughs> Tundra Swan. How do you know birds? My mom likes birds. I can't read your note. Oh, all I said was I, I had seen you a couple times when I was out fishing. And it got me thinking that maybe you could use some seeds and spark plug. You know, I had extra. Thought it might save you a trip to town. And, uh, I don't know. I figured you'd like the feathers. All right, then. All right, then. Where the Crawdads Sing is a romance. It's a whodunit. It's a murder mystery. It's a courtroom drama. Even on some levels, it's a social drama about the conservative American South in the 1950s. But what it isn't, though, is very convincing at any of those things, individually, although the build-up of them, one on t'other, does keep your interest a little bit alive. Also helping is the star, Daisy Edgar-Jones, who is probably best known for her lead role in the series Normal People, which was also a publishing sensation. That's a good niche to find yourself in. I haven't read the book, so I can't speak to the accuracy of the adaptation, but it feels like it has had some sharp edges filed off it, almost as if the bones are there for a gritty, grown-up drama, but this version has been pitched to appeal to as many segments as possible. It's often quite beautiful to look at. The cinematography is by Polly Morgan, and it's directed by Olivia Newman. In fact, it's led by women in almost all of the creative departments. And it really comes alive when they focus on the wildlife of the swamp instead of the humans. But none of it ever feels real. This might help you. For the jury to be able to hear from you, for them to be able to see you as the... That's the kind of person you truly are. You're never going to see me like that. Listen, I know you have a world of reasons to hate these people. No, I never hated them. They hated me. 
I mean, they laughed at me. They left me. They harassed me. They attacked me. You want me to beg for my life? I don't have it in me. I won't. I will not offer myself up. They can make their decision. But they're not deciding anything about me. Where the Crawdads Sing is rated M for violence and sex scenes that are a tepid monument to the intimacy coordinator's art. It's playing all over New Zealand now. Like your tattoo? Where'd you get it? Prison? Yeah, actually. I'm shocked. What's it mean? The writing. Oh, it's... Uh, this guy's name in Greek. What guy? Just a guy, you know, trying to get a rock up a hill. Why? They made him. Who made him? The gods. Did they need a rock? They are just uh, trying to punish him, I think. Did he deserve it? Probably. Do you like it? Probably not. So why'd he do it? You ask a lot of questions. You're quite the conversationalist. I'm gonna get back to work. Hey! Does he ever get to the top of the hill? Huh. I'll let you know. Coming in hot with a budget of over 200 million US dollars, that's roughly 10 times the budget of where the crawdads sing, and the most expensive Netflix production ever, is the new comedy action thriller The Grey Man from the Russo Brothers, the directing team behind Marvel's Infinity War series, the one that killed off half the universe and then brought everyone back. Now, $200 million is an awful lot of scratch by anyone's standards, so I was surprised to discover how ordinary-looking so much of it was. Maybe it's a result of that inflation I keep hearing so much about. There are a couple of very big set pieces that clearly look to have destroyed an awful lot of vehicles, but long sections of it are studio-bound conversations, or people staring at screens yelling, I need a status update, or take the damn shot. Ryan Gosling plays Six, a shadow recruit into an off-the-books CIA assassination program called Sierra. In prison for murder, he's discovered by Billy Bob Thornton and made an offer he can't refuse. Cortland Gentry, born 1980, incarcerated 1995, eligible for parole in 2031. You got a long way to go, son. There's an upside to sleeping so close to your toilet. I get it, you're glib. Well, I'm just going to cut to the chase. My name is Donald Fitzroy and I'm here to commute your sentence. You're going to commute my sentence? Yes. Just like that? When I get up out of this chair and walk out of this prison, you walk with me. Ooh, you my fairy godmother. <laughs> no offense, I thought you'd look different. I may be, we'll see. What's the catch? You work for us. Who's us? The CIA. The Sierra program is not universally well regarded in the spook community, evidently, and 18 years after his recruitment, Six is about to become the only one left. After completing a contract on a bloke he then discovers is Sierra 4, Six is given a MacGuffin, a thumb drive with evidence of malfeasance at the highest level of the agency. How high? To the very top. Now he has the full weight of the agency after him, and that drive. His only advantage is that he officially doesn't exist. No file, not even a name. 
The CIA bad guys need reinforcements, so they go to the private sector. A sociopathic security expert named Lloyd Hansen, played with glee and a village people moustache by Captain America himself, Chris Evans. His first stop, Billy Bob Thornton, who is now in forced retirement and in Azerbaijan. Hey, Fitz. I know you. Professionally, maybe. Lloyd Hansen, Hansen Government Services. Rings a bell. Oh, does it? Good, you know my work. That'll make this next part a lot easier. Where is he? Where's who? You really want to do this? Do what? You know what makes me sad, Don? Your small hands? You spent your whole life basically building Sierra from the ground up, and here you are, out to pasture, burying all your old buddies. Remind me, Hanson, how long did you last at the agency? Six months? Five and a half. Bad ethics, zero impulse control, unsanctioned torture? Something like that. So how's the private sector treating you? Does it pay as well as they say, or do you spend most of your time strangling cats? Who likes cats? I like cats. And so begins a chase across the globe, with our man Six, followed by Hanson and his various gangs of mercenaries. Bangkok, Istanbul, Monaco, Vienna, Berlin, London, Hong Kong... Prague, Washington, D.C., a castle in Croatia, some of those places the production actually went to. While he's on the run, Six takes beatings and shootings every which way, including inside a Thai fireworks display, falling out of a crashing aeroplane, trapped in the basement of a forger's apartment, in the grounds of the aforementioned Croatian castle, and light rail promoters in Auckland and Wellington, please take note, on a tram in Prague. He is glibly indestructible, it would appear, and the film shares that glibness and its indestructibility. The Russos just keep throwing stuff at it, and somehow it doesn't sink. The easiest thing to do here is to describe The Grey Man in terms of other better films. It has the globe-trotting scope of Bond, the one man against a corrupt dark state of the Bourne films, the punchy, balletic action of John Wick. But it doesn't execute as well as any of those, except perhaps that Prague tram chase. The dialogue is hackneyed and cliched, except for Evans' occasionally witty banter as Hanson. There's a huge cast of usually very able performers struggling with the limited characterizations to be mined in the script by the Russos and their regular collaborators, Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely. Anna de Armas, soon to be seen as Marilyn Monroe in Andrew Dominic's biography Blonde, Alfrey Woodard as the retired station chief Margaret Cahill, one of the handsomest stars in world cinema, Wagner Maurer under a bunch of makeup as the forger Laszlo, and Tamil superstar Danush. All do their best, but there's just not enough there for them. The Grey Man has been in development for over a decade, from when Brad Pitt was supposed to play the Ryan Gosling part, and there are a series of ten books by Mark Graney that can be turned into a franchise, and if any studio can pull that off, it would have to be Netflix. After all, their metrics are very different from a normal Hollywood studio. Their priority is minutes watched, and if they can arrest their slide in subscriber numbers with big star exclusive material like this, well, that makes some sense. The Netflix annual production and acquisition budget is now 20 billion US dollars, so they can probably afford it. And here I am talking more about the business than the film. And that's the biggest problem right there. 
they think I'm into whatever you're into, you're gonna tell them I'm not. What gives you the impression that they care what I think? This is my career, you understand? You're just an asset, but it's my career, my reputation. Why did you steal? Technically, I didn't steal anything. Ford gave it to me. Then why didn't you give it to HQ? Well, he gave it to me. What did he give you? An encrypted drive. What's on it? It's encrypted. I want to see it. I don't have it. Where is it? How do I know I can trust you? Because I just saved your life. It's a fair point. I sent it to Margaret Cahill, the UK agency chief, okay? She retired, lives in Prague. What are you thinking? Thinking about what to do with you. Maybe think about it this way. They already had me kill an agent. Now it's my turn. How do you know you're not next? The Grey Man is rated M for violence, offensive language and cruelty. And you might find it in odd sessions at select cinemas still, but most audiences will find it streaming on Netflix now. All three of this week's films are adapted from books. All three of this week's films feature abusive fathers who disappear from the film fairly early on to leave the central child character to deal with all of the traumatic fallout. But only one of them is really any good. It's called The Quiet Girl, and it's the slowest of slow burners. And by golly, it is worth it. The year is 1981. The place is rural Ireland. Nine-year-old Coit, played by Catherine Clinch, lives with her parents and several rowdy siblings in a farmhouse that doesn't boast too much in terms of home comforts, although her father always seems to be able to find funds for a pint, a bit, or a smoke. She's a sensitive child, called the Wanderer by her father, who doesn't appear to speak Irish, which means the rest of the family can separate him from their conversations easily enough. This does not appear to make him any easier to be around. The mother is heavily pregnant, and a decision is made to send Coit away to stay with relatives for the summer holidays. It means one less mouth to feed. The couple she's going to stay with are our distant relatives, in more ways than one. There's a scorcher of a day, hmm? Tis hot, surely. No fields be glad of a supper rain. Well, but we've rained long enough. Aren't you saying hello to our guest? That's herself, then. Herself? That's name. Great cheer for the hay all the same. Cheers, I never see the like of it. Loft is full to capacity. Near split me head off the rafters, pitching a hay. No. How bad? What way is Mary? She's nearing her time. I suppose the last baby's getting hardy. Aye. It's the feeding them that's the trouble. There's no appetite like a child, and believe you me, this one here is no different. Dad is in such a hurry to leave, he drives off with Coit's suitcase still in the back of the car and she has to wear hand-me-down boys' clothes. After that start, it's a while before the wife in the house, Eileen, played by Carrie Crowley, can win her trust. Even then, her promise that there are no secrets in this house doesn't prove to be totally true. 
Eileen and Sean are childless dairy farmers, he stoic and distant, and she careful and loving. But where did those clothes come from? And why is the wallpaper in Coit's bedroom covered with steam trains? As the summer goes on, Coit starts to blossom, but it's clear that when the new baby is born and school starts again, she'll have to return home. And what will that mean for the fragile confidence that she's found? That she's the tower of the hour of what that she's Oh, cooker. Then show her in the house she took. I'm counting up on Irish. I don't know how to get poker, did you? I'm going to look. I hope she's going to get there's a lovely Paul Kelly song called They Thought I Was Asleep, which features a child narrating what they think is happening between their parents while they're in the back of the car on a long journey. For long periods of the quiet girl, Coit really is invisible to the adults around her. There are lots of sequences in the film where the camera focuses on Coit while she and we hear snatches of grown-up conversation from the front seat or in another room of the house. I love the way this film foregrounds Coit's experience without trying to explain what's going on around her, and she doesn't seem too perturbed by it. She's used to it. In fact, not having the attention on her suits her fine. The wonderful performance by Clinch helps here. You can see that there's always something going on, and not all of it is anxiety. Like so many of these types of films, there's an underlying sense of dread throughout, and that perpetual tension might prevent you, like it did me at times, from relaxing and enjoying the genuine pleasures that it contains. But I should point out that, like Chekhov's Revolver, any story where a child is introduced to a well in Act 1, well, you're guaranteed that the well is going to reappear in the story before the end of Act 3. And so it goes. This second is Mirna Hedor Grientreshin. Moshedon Griha Hato Halin. Anish. Nyadon Lane Arigadar Behin and Kyonakuso. Nyadar Way. Quit a banish of bed. Bosetusilo Egan Tundoilat. Their mum locks you back on the fashion affair. Pedro Gulen Kateki. The Quiet Girl is rated M for offensive language and is in well-curated cinemas now. And that's our programme for this week. Some of the needle drops in The Grey Man are more successful than others, uh, but this use of Mark Lindsay's 1970 hit Silverbird not only works as a not-so-obvious choice for background music, but it also gets used in the story. Last week, I mentioned the streaming service uh, Mubi.com, M-U-B-I.com, and that they offer free subscriptions for students. And it turns out, despite the fact that they have been comping me in ever since I got an education email address years ago, that offer is no longer valid. It's $7.99 a month for students, which is just a shade over half price. It remains excellent value, uh, but the error is, of course, regretted. 
This week's edition of At The Movies was produced, written and edited by me, Dan Slevin. Next week, Simon Morris is back in the hot seat, so I hope that you'll join him here at the same time next week. Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies. I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel.